Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Welcome to this uh, Institute for Government discussion on making decisions in a crisis. Uh, I'm Alex Thomas. I'm a programme director at the Institute leading our work on the civil service. Uh, I'm delighted to bring together a, a group who have experienced, worked through and commented on any number of uh, crises to discuss how governments get it right and how they get it wrong. We've also just published a report looking at the government's decision making in the early part of the coronavirus crisis. Uh, and so we'll be exploring what that tells us about the past and more importantly, what the government can learn for the next phase of the pandemic, however it plays out. So I'm joined by a brilliant panel to discuss this. Uh, David Gork uh, was a government minister from 2010 to 2019. Uh, that culminated in three cabinet level jobs, uh, including as Secretary of State for Justice and Lord Chancellor. Uh, David, welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Una O'Brien is a hugely experienced civil servant. She worked across government departments, but especially focused on health policy over her career. And she was permanent secretary at the Department of Health from 2010 to 2016. Una, hi. Hello, Alex. And Sarah Nixon is a researcher at the Institute for Government and the lead author uh, of the report I mentioned uh, earlier. So, I'll kick off, uh, Sarah, with you just to talk us through the headlines from the report. What did what did we find out? What did we learn? Thanks, Alex. So our report looked at three key decisions made in the early phase of the pandemic. So that was the commitment to 100,000 tests by the end of April, uh, the lockdown and school closure decisions, and some of the economic support measures. And what we tried to do with this re- report was really get under the bonnet of decision-making, how those policies were shaped um, and how that flowed on to how well they worked when they were implemented. No doubt anyone listening to this podcast will be broadly familiar with how they how they played out in practice, but just for the sake of completeness, our, our verdict on each of these decisions. So, so testing, we really argue that that target gave a jolt to the system, but it also resulted in some gaming behaviour and uh, was a distraction from some of the bigger things on testing that government needed to be worried about. Um, as far as lockdown and school closures go, obviously those decisions help bring the spread of the virus under control, but there is this um, consent, emerging consensus that in hindsight, those decisions could have come sooner. And then um on the economic support measures, um, obviously government disasters make great copy for journalists. But I mean, I have to say really with these decisions, um, it was a great example of the government machine working exactly as, as it should. And they were rolled out very well, relatively smoothly in the circumstances. But we didn't just look at these decisions in isolation. We compared them to see what that would tell us about how government makes decisions and, and how well the system was responding. Um, and as far as that goes, I think there's three key findings from our research that I, I'd like to highlight just to, to start off. So the first one is, is strategy. Obviously, it's enormously difficult to plan ahead when you don't really understand the crisis that you're dealing with, with as well as you'd like. But I, I think on a lot of our case studies, we really got the sense that government was living in very much in day-to-day mode. Um, and that came out most strongly on testing a lot of the experts have said you really need to know how you want to use testing to make decisions about how much of it you need. 
um, but they didn't. Um, and one of the things we argue in the report was government really needs to set aside dedicated resources to do that thinking about what's coming in three months, six down, months down the track so that you're not stuck in this kind of endless cycle of day-to-day crisis firefighting. The second thing I wanted to highlight was just across our case studies how powerful objectives were in the system. I mean, there's a lot of talk about, you know, government feeling like it's pulling levers um, and finding nothing happens. And I don't want to say that's not true, but one thing that was really striking to me in our research was just, you know, when when ministers set objectives, um, you know, how much and how strongly the system responded across all three case studies. And sometimes that activity was exactly what you wanted, and sometimes it was less desirable. And I think this is where those the, the point about strategy hooks up with the point about objectives, is that people respond to objectives, but you want them to respond in a way that's going to move you in the right direction. And that's why your objectives need to be plugged into a strategy and why you need a strategy. And then the third thing I wanted to highlight um, that we found from the research was just the less than ideal use of evidence. Um, and this is really a study of contrasts between on the one hand, lockdown, where, I mean, we're all familiar with the phrase following the science at this point, but in this case, following the science meant waiting, ministers waiting for the scientists to tell them that they had to act. But the problem was the scientists didn't realise how far advanced the pandemic was. That was because they didn't have a good enough grip on the data. Um, and so this meant that following the science turned out to be something of a problem. And then on the other hand, you've got testing, which almost was a bit of an evidence-free zone in the sense that the health secretary appeared to talk to very few people about the decision before making it. Um, Even the testing coordinator said he hadn't been um, consulted. So I just finished by saying, um, in terms of the kind of the lessons that we've drawn from the report, I would say government has learned from some of its mistakes since the time period that we looked at. Um, but particularly when it comes to strategy and objectives, I, I think with some of the U-turns we've seen, government continue to stumble in in some of the same places. So both for, um, I mean, I think this period that we examined and what they've learned from it, it really is a mixed report card. Thanks, Sarah. That was uh, uh, great, covering covering lots of ground very uh, briefly. And we'll, we'll come back to a number of the points that you mentioned uh, there. Uh, I want to pick up to start with, though, uh, with with David and uh, with Una uh, about the sort of how does it feel in a crisis, the sort of monumental weight of the de- the, the decisions, because that is obviously the, the the context in which all of these are, are talking about. So, uh, David, none of us have uh, um, experienced anything quite like this uh, before. But uh, when you were a minister, how did that decision making process feel? feel how did you and how did you go about it yeah I, I think the first point to make as you as, as you say is is that none of us really experienced anything quite like that and I think one does have to remember that the sheer the sheer scale of this the fact that you know pretty well every single part of government was consumed by uh, covid the the uh, this emerged relatively quickly and it was also a problem that was going to be sustained you know it's like a sort of flooding for example where you've got a problem for a few days and then hopefully it will pass Uh, and that the information was extraordinarily uncertain both in terms of the the uh, the way the virus is going to behave but also how the public were going to react but yes as a as a a minister you do feel an enormous sense of responsibility 
um, you, you are conscious that in something like this, that there are no good and easy choices, um, that you are going to be judged to some extent by those who have the benefit of hindsight, uh, and that um, the, the consequences, one way or the other, whether it be to the number of lives lost or to the state of the economy and you know, general well-being, you know, these these are really um, big moments. Um, and you know, the challenge, and I, you know, just picking up on on one of the points that Sarah's just made, you know, the challenge to to, to address the immediate issues, you know, the short term decisions that need to be made quickly, when you don't really have the evidence, um, and you know, you're to some extent in the dark. Um, but you've also got to think strategically, and you have got to think about you know where are we going to be in three months, six months' time, uh, and that's that is enormously difficult and i think the sort of you know the bandwidth of government both for ministers and for senior officials um was clearly exceeded and that's not meant as a criticism you know this is this is a this is a scale of a crisis you know that we really haven't seen since um the beginning of the second world war yeah thank you and uh una i'm picking up on that sort of casting our minds back to february march it it seems like uh, a, a, another era but uh, drawing on what david said there about the sort of speed and scale and unprecedented nature of this uh, what do you think about how uh, you know, how the civil service and ministers working together will have set up the system to deal with this and also how it will have how it will have felt from 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 that perspective mm. Well, certainly I recognise the uh, points that David's made, and I'm particularly struck by the bandwidth point. I'd add to that, I think there was an issue about mindset, actually, in the the early months. Because even though, I mean, we could all see what was happening in in China, I've often thought there was a slight sense, perhaps, of disbelief in both the public and the political mind. It, It couldn't happen here, and... We would never lock down like that. I think in our case, it may be that in those early weeks, the government machine was also trapped uh, in a mindset linked to its previous or its then adherence to planning for a flu pandemic. And it's totally human and rational to build on what we know and a belief that we're already prepared. Uh, I, I recall that in 2017, the World Health Organization had ranked... Um, the countries who are most prepared for a pandemic, and both the United States and the United Kingdom were up at the top of the list. Um, so, in my in my sort of way of looking back on it all, this formed the context for decisions. Perhaps a, a sense of stalling, which is natural when you're facing um, some deeply incom- uncomfortable options. In truth, we weren't prepared, and we acted at probably the latest possible point. And uh, I think your report has has done a huge service in casting light on why this might be. But I still believe we're only in the foothills of understanding why that was. I I see a government that had to pivot 180 degrees, a new government. Um, Preparations that we were building on were perhaps too narrowly based. And I've still got questions about how quickly and effectively we stood up the internal machinery for uh, going into emergency mode, speed with which COBRA was convened, the uh, the, uh, standing up of gold command across the country, all of those uh, pre-tested pieces of infrastructure 
uh, how well did we use them? How well did the coordination work between departments? There's still so much we, we've got to learn about that early period. It's interesting, which comes back to the, the mindset point, doesn't it? Uh, uh, and it's it's almost hard to remember now, but you're, you're right, I think. Uh, it, it, it seemed some of the measures that very quickly became uh, inevitable uh, seemed inconceivable just sort of days or weeks beforehand. Uh, I mean, picking up what, what one of the things that comes out of the report, and Sarah mentioned it briefly, she might want to uh, come in on this uh, as, as well, but the, the, the following the science mantra, much debate and uh you know we had it in in writing the report as well about uh about the sage committee and uh the extent to which it uh provided really authoritative evidence but how quickly it could do it what the function of the sage committee is and how it kind of is an advisory committee but can't be a policy making committee we felt there was a a clash between that structure um and uh, minister's uh, uh, mantra of following the science and that uh, it almost created a sort of uh, it, it created a, a, an unconstructive relationship bet- between the two because because it, it, it made it harder to, to make decisions. I mean, I mean uh, Una, is that, is that something you recognise from your time? You dealt with health crises uh, from, uh, uh, you know, Ebola through to uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, many other things. Yes. Well, there are many elements to this. One of the the challenges we've got at the moment in making a reasoned judgment uh, in response to your question, uh, uh, we we can see the minutes of a lot of those uh, SAGE meetings. What we can't see is the policy advice that was put to ministers or the minutes of uh, meetings in the cabinet committees where these matters were discussed. And so we only have a partial picture of trying to understand how the uh, knowledge, the modelling and the uh, insights from those committees was translated into uh, political uh, decisions. And I think that makes it quite difficult to be uh, really categorical about what happened. Um, So having said that, I, I I sometimes reflect on this and wonder if the government were leaning in the space of trying to say to the public, we really are doing this seriously and we really are listening to what the scientists are saying rather than acting out of uh, political ideology or party political interest. And so I think that's probably where it began. And the um, phrase then caught on and was perhaps used uh, far too casually uh, in the press conferences and in the public pronouncements, because we know that um, there's no such thing as earth science. And many of the individuals on that committee have given evidence to several of the select committees. And through those processes, we've come to understand that uh, there's a, a, a much wider range of um, information that was going across to government and that it was changing fairly rapidly. I, uh, so my, my overall take on it at the moment is that there's still more to come out on all of this, and I, I think the whole system of advice to government, the degree of its independence, the numbers of people who are actually speaking directly to ministers, all of that will need to be looked at when we come through the worst of this crisis to see whether it's fit for purpose for the future. 
David, would would you have uh, followed the science? <laughs> I think it's entirely understandable why um, ministers were, you know, if you like, heavily reliant upon um, the scientific advice that they were they were getting, and indeed in terms of their communication with the general public, trying to make it clear that they were um, relying on scientists. You know, politicians aren't amazingly enough universally loved and respected. Mm-hmm. Um, scientists, I think, um, tend to be more highly regarded uh, in a period of uncertainty, you know, relying heavily on the experts um, seemed a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And I, I, we do have to be careful not to, 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 overly, you know, to be overly harsh because, because we have the benefit of hindsight. Um, what, what I do think is, 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 is well, I, what, what I have a very, sort of very strong suspicion is that um, you know, across government, there wasn't the early engagement, and there wasn't an acceptance that you know things could. You know, what, what's the worst that could things could be? I think there was a bit of a tendency to think it, it will work out all right, um, and you know, there was a slowness. I think particularly in February. Uh, you know, I know by by early March, I know that the health secretary was very, very concerned that we were heading towards something that was going to result in hundreds of thousands of deaths. Um, you know, I heard that sort of secondhand at the time. Um, and yet at that point, it didn't really feel as if the whole of Whitehall was focused on this and preparing the ground. That's not to say that the you know, decisions to lock down should have come earlier. But I'm I'm not sure that the, you know, working out the strategy and so on that that was that got the attention it deserved in the in the course of, of, of February, which then meant when it did become clear what the scale of this was, the government found itself firefighting, and you know, again coming back to sort of Sarah's point, it was all about getting through the next day and dealing with the immediate problems, um, and and within that there were some real successes actually, by the way, but. But it, it, but it also meant that there just wasn't the, the space to look up and think, well, what do we want to be doing in three months and six months' time? And, you know, I think, um, and to some extent this is with hindsight, but I think some of that should have been done earlier. More preparation, I think, might have meant that the system was less stretched when, when, when the real crisis arrived. Which comes back a bit to that mindset point as well that Una was saying. And I'm, yes, I'm acute. Yeah. And I'm acutely conscious of your hindsight uh, thing as well. It's um, uh, it's uh, trying to unpick what uh, might have been, could have been, should have been known at the time, and what was impossible to know um, uh, is uh, is incredibly important. You talked about successes, David, and uh, I uh, I'm I've become mildly obsessed by uh, a point that that struck us around the economic support measures, which is that decision-making doesn't have to be worse in a crisis. In fact, it, it can sometimes be better. And I'm going to um, uh, grotesquely malign some of my former colleagues in the uh, Treasury here, but um, but one of the things that struck us is that some of the uh, worst characteristics of the Treasury, the sort of um, ego, closed-mindedness uh, uh, and uh, lack of willingness to um, uh, work with the rest of government, um, I caricature, uh, uh, fell away in the crisis. And actually, uh, the Treasury worked incredibly smoothly with in the in, in, under this immense pressure with 
trade unions, with business representatives, also with delivery arms of, of government, HMRC and, 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 and DWP. Does that, does that surprise you, David, or are you, are you uh, uh, completely uh, confident that, that Treasury officials will always step up to it and ministers? Well, um, maybe I was just, I was in the Treasury so long that um, I've become completely institutionalised, but, but maybe uh-huh. it demonstrates that the caricature was, was, was wrong all along. Um, and very the, fair, very fair. Yeah, yeah. So no, I think look, I think the, 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 the treasury did well. Did well. The economic package, I think, was was good. I think w- w- one thing, I mean, not to qualify it, but it, it was perhaps a little. Um, what made things a little bit easier is there was a very clear sense of well, we will err on the side of of, of speed, of generosity, of, of of better to be too big than too small. Um, and then once you've kind of got license to do that, then it is easier to do to do things. I think that was the right judgment call, by the way. That's not a criticism, but I think, you know, for example, we've we've seen the, the stuff in recent days about you know quite a lot of the furlough money money has been paid out in error or fraud. Well, look, there's always a judgment. There's a trade off about do you want to get the money out the door quickly or do you want to make sure that there's as little as possible wasted in fraud and error. Um, they made a judgment. I think it was the right judgment at the time, and now they will have to work through the, the, the billions of pounds that have been paid out in error. But you know, once you've got a clear direction, and this is the side on which you err, then you can move with greater speed. Um, I think it's also, I mean, you know, I, I look closely at those departments in which I previously served. I mean, it's the dogs that don't bark that you know, can get missed. Uh, at the beginning of this process, when we saw there was going to be a huge surge in universal credit claims, you know, one could easily have imagined that the, the universal credit system would run into problems, that job centres and DWP would not have been able to cope. But they did cope, and, and, that, and that, that is a significant achievement. Another area I sort of uh, know from my ministerial uh, time prisons, you know, expectation there that, that the virus might get hold in prisons. Um, and yet that hasn't happened been relatively few deaths when the, there was an expectation that might have been thousands. Um, and there was work that was done within the prison service to, to sort of prevent that. So I think, you know, in, in, you know, naturally public attention tends to focus on the things that haven't gone well. And indeed, those are the things that we can probably learn from. And, you know, we're talking greater detail about testing, for example. But I, I, I think the, the civil service and indeed ministers deserve some, credit for those areas that have gone through a real crisis and actually come through pretty well, uh, if not unscathed, at least not not badly damaged. One thing I, I, I think that really struck me doing a lot of the interviews for this report was just um, how positive, uh, you know, stakeholders like business representatives, union representatives were, not just about the initial result of the package, but how the government went about developing it in consultation with them. I, I think that really stood out to me, even where, you know, they weren't entirely 100% happy with the decision, they, they felt a degree of satisfaction with the process. But I think um, one thing I was really conscious of with this report was we, we are quite glowing, I guess, about, you know, how well those decisions on the economic support measures were shaped, but very conscious that um, I think the three kind of areas of decisions we examined this, in this report it's not exactly a level playing field. Um, I mean, I think to pick up on, on what you, you said, David, you, it makes the government's life a bit easier when they're prepared to be generous um, too. But, 
you know, you compare the economic support measures to, you know, testing where you've got a, a really complex chain, delivery chain um, to harness and, and then lockdown, like they're enormously grave decisions with, as, as you've said, you know, um, you know, not enough information and, you know, we're looking back with the benefit of hindsight. So I think that's something that we, we also have to bear in mind too if we're going to judge all of this fairly. Yes, sir, I, I definitely agree agree with that. We can see with the Treasury that they acted decisively at scale and, and with imagination, and uh, I agree there's good dialogue with stakeholders. Interestingly, one of the things they also did well, uh, which perhaps other departments could, could learn from, was they um, kept those lines of communication open and they adapted rapidly in response to feedback and that's a really crucial behavior when you're acting uh, at speed with a lot of uncertainty but the point i really wanted to make about one of the reasons that initiative has been their initiatives have been so successful is they were able to use uh, an existing digital infrastructure uh, which has been invested in uh, significantly over the last 10 years and the fact that we've now got a real-time reporting relationship between HMRC and with businesses uh, made it possible to implement these schemes uh, at, at, at speed. I think it's also the case with the business rate retention scheme, which was operated through local government, that again, the, the relationship that existed between local authorities and businesses was uh, brought into service. Uh, if you like, to make that initiative work. And we contrast this with testing, and there was no equivalent pre-existing infrastructure which could, if you like, be redeployed. Um, I was looking recently at the budget, for example, that Public Health England had to protect from infectious diseases, and it was around about £80 million a year, uh, and it contrast that with the fact that already just by August we've had to spend a billion pounds on standing up the new test and trace system and we expect that it's going to cost 10 billion pounds by the time it's set up. So that completely dwarfs anything that, that PHE had for infection control and what we're facing really with testing is we're having to build um, a complex national infrastructure uh, from, from scratch. Now, there are issues about how that's been done, which we can perhaps come back to. But I think um, at the, it's one thing to talk about the quality of decision making, but if you haven't got the implementation infrastructure to um, back up your decisions, you can see that the, the problems the Department of Health have faced around testing are just immense. I think that's a really important point around it's not just the decisions that were made in February, March, April that really had a bearing on, you know, the UK's success or otherwise at tackling the coronavirus. It's, it's all the decisions over the many years leading up to this point that have played a part. And I think um, that pivots to another thing that we kind of, um, I guess, obliquely looked at in the report. Uh, and that's just around the complex kind of health landscape that has existed in the UK since the you know, health and social care act of the the coalition years um one of the problems was a lot of the time there was a bit of confusion about who is responsible for what and obviously ministers bear some responsibility for that but 
I mean, perhaps not helped by the, the architecture that they were dealing with. So, you know, I, I'm interested in whether what your reflections about the, about those reforms, about how, you know, that affected, um, you know, fortunes on testing. Well, I'm not sure really that the reforms made a difference one way or the other. Um, Public Health England, uh, despite what people say about it, was actually a very big achievement to bring together um, prevention of illness um, with health health improvement um, was a very fine vision. And I still believe that it's the right way to organise public health. There are deep issues about our willingness as a country to invest in resilience and to carry uh, spare capacity to do things uh, when we don't actually need it. And uh, I think that's more the issue here. Interestingly, if I may just share an anecdote from Canada, um, even countries that experienced SARS still struggled with this. Canada had an outbreak of SARS in 2014. And as a result, um, in Ontario, they hugely increased their um, stockpiles of PPE. And 10 years later, their equivalent of our National Audit Office went to inspect these stockpiles, which had been kept specifically in the, uh, uh, for fear of another respiratory uh, infectious outbreak. And on inspecting the stockpile, they found that most of it was out of date. So this race, this anecdote um, does ask us deep questions about our willingness to invest in uh, resilience around health protection, regardless of which organisation it's rooted in. And I think for the future, it will be extremely important to keep an eye on the new National Institute for Health Protection to see how well uh, supported it really is in practice to have the level of the surveillance, surveillance and protection that we're going to need. You talked about the um, future there, uh, Una, and I, I want us to uh, think a bit about kind of what lessons we can uh, learn and, and kind, of, kind of practically how, how governments can, can can apply this. What, one of the, the other points that comes out of the work we've done is the, the power of the objective. And in, in one sense, it's a, this is a truism. It's, you know, it's, it's obvious that you set the objective, but I was in these three case studies that we looked at, um, I was very kind of taken with the fact that the government set the objective of protecting the NHS uh, and the NHS was, was protected. It was not ov- overwhelmed. Uh, they set an objective of a hundred thousand tests. Okay. There's all sorts of shenanigans about precisely whether that was met or not, but you know, essentially it was, it, 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 it achieved what it, what it needed to. Uh, and then they, uh, as, as David was saying earlier, the objective of whatever it takes uh, around the economy and the support, even to the extent of prioritizing, getting money out the door over tackling uh, fraud and, and so on. Uh, uh, it was, you know, in, in, in that first phase of the crisis that, that was met. So the, the sort of the power of the objective and what gets, um, uh, you know, what, what, what gets uh, measured gets done and what gets set uh, uh, gets done. Uh, D- I mean, David, I wonder what, what you think about what uh, what ministers and senior officials can uh, can apply from this in terms of the next phase of the crisis, recognising that we don't know what's going to happen. We know an awful lot more than we did before, but we don't know what's going to happen. How how, how can they uh, refine their strategy? I think the, the the point that is made in the report is a is is a good one. That sometimes the 
well, you know, one objectives matter, but 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 two, when you look at it, you know, sometimes the objectives, you know, there were there were nice things to say, and you know, the public could understand it, and, and it met an immediate concern. But stepping back, was it strategically the right objective? Probably not. So you know, saving the NHS, mm. um, I suspect, I don't know whether they had time to focus group it, but I suspect it probably played quite well. We all love the NHS. Everyone could see what was happening in Italy and the fear of the you know, the health service being overwhelmed was at the forefront of people's minds. So it, it was probably quite effective in terms of changing people's behaviour. And, and, and in that sense, you know, quite a good objective to, to, to state. Um, but the problem is, that, of course, you know, ultimately it's not about saving the NHS, it's about saving lives. Uh, and to what extent that the, the objective, which was kind of quite good communications, distorted things. So, you know, did that play into the approach to care homes? I mean, we'll, we'll find out properly in due course, but there's got to be a suspicion uh, that, it, that it did. And I think, again, with the testing numbers, um, and I can understand why Matt did that and it did provide a jolt to the system. And, you know, it's a sort of classic case of, you know, set a testing target and that will really get things moving. But but did that come at the expense of just you know, thinking strategically, what is the most intelligent way that we could use our testing system? And some of it, of course, is about numbers. And, and I completely accept Una's points of, of, you know, there wasn't the infrastructure there and it was terribly difficult. But were we a bit slow to recognise that testing was going to be a bit, was going to be really important in the longer term? I think we were. And have we been a bit slow to use testing in a, in a sort of strategically clever way? I mean, I, I you know, floated the idea many months ago um, that we should be using the testing system more sort of closely in conjunction with what was at the time the, the beginning of the easing of the lockdown system. So, um, you know, let, let's take schools, for example. Could we be using the testing system to make sure that schools stay open for, for longer, that they don't have to close down, that we spot problems more quickly so that we can, um, uh, you know, elate, enable a greater degree of continuity? And I, I'm still not entirely sure that in our testing objectives that we have you know, got something that is aligned with our lockdown or easing of lockdown objectives and, and, and trying to tie that all together I, I don't underestimate how difficult that might be but you know when it comes to objectives we have got some issues which are pretty broad-based they're across departments and, and in truth you need quite sophisticated objectives um, if we to get the right answer for the country. Una what do you think about yeah objectives? well well I certainly um, picking up there on on David's point I think that is scope to uh, and and indeed you know I think it should have been done three or four months ago to better integrate a testing strategy with the easing of lockdown so that it, it it you know really should it have been possible just to be worried that you've got symptoms and go to to book a test and go and get one I mean how much of our testing capacity has been um, you know, used up by the worried well, so to speak, rather than where we absolutely need to make sure that there is um, control of the virus circulating. So I, th I think, you know, we can only uh, change the future now, but I would like to see, exactly to David's point, a much greater integration between 
the availability of testing and the places where we are most most vulnerable. Um, so I think um, just um, on that, the the scale of the task must not be underestimated because it isn't simply about making the tests available. It's also the laboratory capacity that sits behind it. And I, I think the government has genuinely struggled on, on standing that up. We, we might have made much more use of university and private sector laboratory facilities earlier. I don't understand what's uh, prevented that from happening. But I, I do think that, that this will turn out to be one of the stories of um, rather, a rather faltering, um, rather, rather faltering decisiveness and action. On the overall coordination, I'm interested, Alex, to see that the um, committees right at the centre of government have been changed recently. So instead of four ministerial committees, we now have just two. Um, as I understand it, the strategy committee chaired by the Prime Minister and the operations committee chaired by um, Michael Gove. So I'm, I'm hoping that that provides a, a sort of infrastructure right at the centre that allows for a greater integration of these different uh, policy and delivery strands we, we will have to see hmm. yes and that that organization in the center is sort of surprisingly uh, important in terms of who who's in which discussion and uh, who's who's in which meeting i i wonder if there's is there is there more that we can say about the about these obje- objectives because there's uh, protecting the nhs clearly was a legitimate objective but as david said it it, yeah. it, it wasn't broad enough. It, it didn't yeah. cover it. So, um, well, let me just say uh, something going about, forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts yeah. on uh, on yeah. that. Well, uh, you know, on social care, um, how did we come to have an objective about you know save the NHS for all the reasons that David said? Yes, it plays very well with the public, but we got to that place. I would argue because there's a history of second class citizenry around social care. It's treated as other, as separate, uh, rather than the reality. It is part of the wider system of care. And uh, I I think there is um, a deeply concerning story about the precise interaction between hospitals and care homes that we've yet to get to the bottom of. Um, And part of the reason, perhaps, that it felt possible to... um, offload elderly people, people who perhaps were uh, already carrying the virus from hospital into care homes, was because social care didn't feature in those early objectives. I don't know the answer to that, but I do think that how you come to a clear objective about the NHS, uh, as we did, is partially rooted in um, a, a long history of not taking social care seriously as part of a wider system of care. Can I just yep, add, add to that? I think I'm just sort of expanding on sort of earlier points. It, you know, it, it, it struck me that um, yeah, at the time of the launch of the of, of the slogan about you know, protecting the NHS, um, yeah, there was a big effort about influencing public behaviour. Uh, and, and to be honest, that was a great success, whether that was down to, to the government's message or just how people reacted. But, you know, people did take COVID very seriously. They were remarkably compliant with the lockdown. Um, and and you know, in terms of behavioural change, it, it probably exceeded what the government uh, 
uh, expected. I think the challenge is that the sort of public, the, the messaging to the public is one thing. The message, the message to, um, if you like, the public sector, to 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 to, to the healthcare professionals, and so on. Um, needed to be more nuanced, and it, it turned out it wasn't sort of possible to run two. It didn't seem to be possible to run two different messages, and maybe maybe it wasn't possible. But I, I I wonder whether some of the difficulty here was that a message that played well with the public actually sent a sort of somewhat confusing or misleading message, uh, certainly a suboptimal message to you know people who are making decisions as to you know whether they clear the wards or not. I think that's a really interesting point, actually, that you, you both made, Una and, and David, around um, social care and, and how that how that might have got lost. I mean, on the on the, the the messaging point, it's really striking when you go back and read the Sage minutes, um, just how much that message of Save the NHS comes out also in the Sage minutes as well as in the public messaging. Um, and I mean, on the social point, hooking into Sage. Um, one of the SAGE members, I think it might have been at a parliamentary committee, basically confessed their ignorance of how um, social care worked. You know, I think it was something around not realising that social care workers who were moving between, worked in multiple different care homes, which I think, you know, absolutely agrees to your point about lack of appreciation of social care, but also, um, you know, leads one to question, you know, just how central SAGE I mean, was to decision-making in the sense of, you know, it's entirely reasonable for a bunch of scientists not to understand how social care works um, or, you know, other operational matters of, of government for that matter. Um, but then, of course, that raises the question of was, you know, was SAGE right to be the focus of decision-making in the way that it, it needs to, obviously, with the caveat of, as you say said earlier, Una, um, we, we perhaps take a... Uh, a disproportionate view of these things just because SAGE is the one that's published its minutes. You haven't seen the advice to government that have come from all the various departments of state. I want to, towards the end of the discussion, uh, just spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about accountability um, and in terms of lessons that that, that government might learn about uh, accountability. This is a, you know, this is a government that is uh, keen to hold very senior civil servants uh, accountable, um, certainly at the, at the moment, and we've seen some dramatic developments on that over the last uh, few uh, weeks. One of the things that came out of the report was there were some quite extraordinary moments where civil servants effectively were distancing themselves from the Secretary of State for Health's uh, testing targets and doing that quite publicly, which was uh, which was uh, you know, very unusual. And one of the conclusions that we draw was that in those early stages, uh, the accountability and the responsibility for delivering the, the testing and the testing target was uh, very, very unclear and uh, lessons to learn there. The, the government clearly has learned that lesson to an extent. And we've seen czars coming in and multiplying Dido Harding uh, on, on, on testing, but but lots of uh, others. I wonder what, um, uh, David, Una, you, you, you think the, the best way to kind of tackle this accountability deficit, if, if there is one, is it just sort of clarity of responsibility or is there something deeper? Uh, I think, I mean, there, there's a few factors, I think, in play here. I mean, part of it, I mean, let, let, let's be honest, that there is, a, there is a more difficult relationship between ministers and civil servants um, at the moment, and, and, and indeed probably pre-COVID and, and not re- necessarily related to, to COVID now. Um, there is a more difficult relationship between ministers and civil servants, I think, than there has been for, for a very long time. 
uh, um, you know, we, there's another there's another webinar to be had mm-hmm. on the read behind that. Um, I, I think it's also the case that um, you know, some of the existing structures that that we have in place weren't well suited to the particular crisis. You know, I mean, there's obviously you know, Tony Blair's been making the argument about how you know we should create you know a, a, a department for testing and you know issues of, of of that sort. And we haven't really talked about it very much today. But you know, some of the challenges that are cross departmental. You know, Whitehall's never been particularly good at, at, at that, and I think we've probably seen some examples uh, of, of that in the course of, of, of recent months as well. Um, so I, I think you know there are some you know real problems with it. I I I I, I you know I share the concern um, that has been expressed in in, you know, in some circumstances that ministers have been escaping accountability and that you know, permanent secretaries have fallen on the swords for issues that were largely due to policy decisions. So, um, you know, I think there is there are concerns about how ministerial accountability is working at the moment. Yeah. Una, what do you think about how to hold people appropriately accountable? Well, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> Look, the, you know, I think anyone who's been following this subject and uh, who work at the Institute for Government actually will know that this has been uh, a... A topic of conversation and concern for at least the last 20 years and uh, it's intensified and got a different characteristic with the current government but there's nothing new about this uh, we certainly saw it in the period of time when i was permanent secretary the shift towards greater accountability of senior responsible officers uh, being invited to give evidence in their own right to select committees about progress on major projects. So we have got a model of accountability which is being stretched by the complexity of modern government and I think it's a subject all of its own. What happens when you have a crisis as dramatic and uh, enormous as COVID is it exposes all the weak points in our system and I think there are bound to be have been questions uh, between ministers and senior civil servants about uh, each of these areas who is responsible what what is it that needs to be done and particularly how fast can we move um, I'm not sure how to what extent uh, permanent secretaries have use the mechanisms that are available to them um, to seek direction. I know there have been a number of them during the course of decisions over the last few months where they felt that um, decisions are not value for money and therefore sought a direction from their Secretary of State to proceed uh, uh, in any case. It will be interesting to look back on how well that worked. I certainly would like to see more shared accountability um, from, uh, from ministers as well as from civil servants. And I think we ought to be quite worried about the implication of so many senior leaders from the civil service leading in such a short space of time and the chilling effect that that could have on the quality of advice from uh, officials to ministers in the future. And the chilling effect partly uh, in terms of 
officials being unwilling to give advice, but also a chilling effect in terms of uh, audit trail and uh, back covering and uh, wanting to um, uh, be very uh, cautious about that. As, as, as you both said, that's a, a huge subject that we could uh, we could carry on talking about, and the, and the Institute for, for Government uh, will definitely uh, do so. Um, but uh, for now, I'll uh, draw things to uh, a, a close. Uh, thanks to uh, uh, all, all three of you, uh, Sarah and Nixon, for your contributions and for uh, uh, leading on uh, the report drafting, which uh, is a fantastic uh, report, uh, even if I do say so myself, um, uh, to uh, David Gork uh, and to Una O'Brien uh, for uh, words of uh, wisdom and uh, insight today. Uh, thanks for listening to this uh, Institute for Government uh, podcast. Uh, you can uh, download the report from our website, along with lots of other IFG Live uh, events and uh, other podcasts. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk events. <laughs>